Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. What's your picture of Jesus? Maybe you, you, you do spend time trying to imagine what he looked like. I, I grew up in the generation where in Sunday school class we had flannel graph. I kind of like flannel graph because uh, I was a visual learner and... Uh, Whenever I imagined Jesus when I was a kid, he had that white robe and that blue sash on. I don't know what your flannograph looked like, but that's what it was for me. And, and then with the advent of uh, movies and technology, when the first Jesus movies came out, it, uh, the picture of Jesus was sort of this stern-faced white guy who spoke in a British accent. And, uh, and then when more movies came out, like recently the movie by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, uh, it's the Jim Caviezel Jesus with the piercing blue eyes. Um, and I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think about Jesus. And we, we do know the scriptures tell us in Isaiah that uh, he, he wasn't the kind of person, he didn't physically look like the kind of person that would, you'd be drawn to immediately. Uh, he probably looked very normal. Um, but, but when you think about your picture of who Jesus is, his character, and uh, I wonder what comes to mind. Is, is he the, the consummate teacher who's downloading information, who wants you to make sure you have the right info about who he is? Or maybe he's the tender and compassionate Jesus who's always carrying the white woolly lamb in his hands wherever he goes. Uh, he's, just, he's always speaking in a soft voice. Or maybe he's the Jesus who always agrees with you. Or the Jesus who disagrees with the things that you disagree with. That can be a kind of a scary place, isn't it? In our culture, in our society, there's all these different pictures of who Jesus is. And it's really important that we have the right picture of, of who Christ is. And, and this jumbling, these jumbling of ideas and image of who Christ is, is really that's reflected in the title slides on the screen here in the Bible studies. That's why that's sort of like a, a puzzle because sometimes people have a puzzling uh, picture of who Christ could be. But imagine, if you would, for a moment, that if we could gather 24 or 25 of those first followers of Jesus, if we could put them up here on the platform, and they were sitting in chairs or on stools, and we could ask them to tell us their, their encounter, to tell us their story about their encounter with Christ, to give us just a, a bit of a snapshot of who Jesus is from, from their angle, sort of getting their, their first-hand experience with Jesus, what would they say? I mean, what would the, the little boy who had five loaves and two fish, what angle would he give us on Jesus? What picture would he develop for us? How would he share his story and how might that story give us a picture of who Jesus is? Compared to perhaps the, the picture of uh, the woman who's, who's lost her husband and now she's in a funeral procession and she's going to bury her only son. Jesus, in that story, Jesus walks up, moved with compassion, stirred with compassion from the inner core, walks up, interrupts a funeral, and, and, and raises this young man from the dead. What might be the story that she tells? What's the picture that she would begin to develop for us about who Christ is? And in a way, sort of like this, this massive digital picture, all these pixels, all these stories being collected and put together to make sure that we have a, an accurate, a, a biblical picture of who Christ is. It's very important because Paul writes to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And when we see Jesus, we see the heart of the Father. We see the Father in Christ. Jesus reveals the Father. So what's your picture 
of who Jesus is. And these weeks that we're in this, uh, this sermon series and in this Bible study series, we're looking at these, these pictures, these stories of these first followers so that we can, can have an accurate, uh, an accurate picture, image in our mind of who Jesus is. And today we're looking at the story of Matthew the tax collector. So grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9, looking at a short little passage here of when Matthew was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And would you stand as I read from Matthew chapter 9? I'll read verses 9 through 13. And as I read, if you'd follow along, that would be great as we look at this particular picture, this story of Jesus. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. I went to college in Northern California in the Bay Area. And uh, every once in a while on weekends, and sometimes not on weekends, we would go down to a theme park there. It's called Great America. And uh, we, we love going to theme park. I love roller coasters. And uh, obviously most theme parks, most amusement parks have an, a signature ride, kind of the big ride, the scary ride. And they, they have scary names for them. If you've been to theme parks, you've seen them. They get you know, roller coasters called the Grizzly or the Anaconda. One uh, roller coaster I've seen is called the Mind Racer. I guess it's so traumatic that your memory is just, you know, wiped clean. Uh, and uh, another one that's called the Viper. One that didn't really understand the name. It was called the Wild Mouse. But I guess for some that's a scary, frightening thing. Uh, just lose the punch, that name for me. But, but if, you, if you've ever gone to a theme park, an amusement park, and you try and get in line on one of these, these big rides, you know it's typically a long wait, Right? And, um, and all along the way, as you're waiting in line, that line could be a 30 minute long, it could be an hour long, perhaps even longer. And as you're standing in line there, there's all these signs along the way that are telling you who can ride and who can't ride on this, this ride. Like this one here, this is Woody Woodpecker. You have to be at least 48 inches tall to ride this ride. Or here's a, a kind of a, an astronaut thing. You must be at least 48 inches tall to launch. Apparently there's some secret to being at least 48 inches tall. I don't know what it is, but it's a good thing. Uh, this police officer hand out, you must be this tall to ride. And how many times do you go to a theme park or to an amusement park and you're standing in line there for an hour or longer and you, you, you get up there, you hear some wailing, right? You hear some crying because some parent or some grandparent believed that these rules applied to other people's children, not to their 47 and a half inch daughter or a grandson. Or, or, uh, and you used to see the tears streaming down their cheeks because they waited all this time and they can't ride. Why? They're too short. They're too short so they have to spend their day spinning in a teacup somewhere else. They can't ride the Viper or the, the Grizzly or the Mind Eraser. They're too short. 
And that, that statement is not just found in amusement parks and theme parks. We, we hear it, you know, all through life. In middle school, you're too pudgy. In high school, you weren't popular enough or your grades weren't good enough. In college, you studied hard and, and you worked hard and you got your degree. And you got out of college and then you started applying for jobs. And then as you're having an interview and you're, you're hearing back from the person who's interviewed you and they tell you, well, you just don't have enough experience. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, if you just hire me, I would get some experience. And you're having a hard time getting that first job. Or maybe now you're a little bit older, your company is downsized, and now you're out of a job, and you're applying and looking for jobs, and they look at you and say, you, you, you got too much experience. It's like you can't win, right? You're, you're too short. You don't measure up. You don't want to have it. You don't have what it takes. This is a message we hear often in society, whether it's a theme park or you're looking for a job, or you're at school or in the neighborhood, you're too short, you don't measure up, you don't want to have it, you don't have what it takes, you don't fit in. And I want to suggest to you that Matthew would have felt the sting of these words on a daily basis. Matthew, the tax collector, would have heard day in, day out, you're too short, you don't have what it takes, you don't measure up. And he would have felt the sting of it. I mean, if, if we didn't know any better, we might look at Jesus and his 12 disciples and think, well, those 12 guys, they, they probably went through some interview process, right? They probably went through some, I mean, like they lined up with thousands, like for American Idol, and they, and it, or like, you know, Dancing with the Stars or Survivor, and the, the cream of the crop got picked to hang out with Jesus. It was kind of like their reward for being so good, so smart, so brilliant. No. It's like Jesus collected the the biggest losers of the day. They were too short. They didn't measure up. They didn't have what it took. And they felt the sting of it. Particularly Matthew would have felt the sting of this day in and day out. Before we even really dive into the story, let me just set some of the, the social and historical context of how Matthew would have heard this message over and over again. You're too short, you don't measure up, you don't have what it takes. He was politically unacceptable. He was from the wrong party. You see, Matthew served Rome. As a tax collector, he would have likely have, have bid for an area, a place where he would have raised taxes. He scholars tell us that he would have likely have told a regional supervisor or director that if you let me tax this area, I will provide this amount of sum to you. I will provide, just pick a number, $100,000, a million dollars. I'll supply this to you. And what Matthew would have done is he would have taxed people. He would have taxed their income. He would have just taxed a broad spectrum of people. If you were walking down a road by Matthew, you would have been taxed for being on that road. If if you were uh, had some pack animals that were carrying produce, you would have been your animals would have been taxed. If you crossed the Sea of Galilee, you could have been taxed. You could your shipment could be taxed. I mean, if you had a vineyard, vineyards were taxed at a fifteen percent rate. It was tax, 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 and and Matthew was aligned with Rome. And he was seen as a traitor. And as he would raise this money to, to provide the sum that he had bid, then he would tax more to raise an income for himself. And he, he pretty much lived the high life. We know from Zacchaeus' story that Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man. He was a tax collector. And Matthew would have, would have taxed the people 
at amazing levels. He would have been serving Rome. He would have been seeing sort of like a, a CIA agent who sold out to an enemy. He was from the wrong party. He was serving the wrong country. He should have been loyal to his own country, but he aligned with this foreign power, this enemy, so he was politically unacceptable. He was too short. He was also religiously unacceptable. Because he aligned with Rome and didn't align with his own people, he would have been declared unclean. In in a Mosaic law setting, unclean. Matthew, the tax collector, is unclean. If he would have tried to go to synagogue, he would have been kept outside the doors. You can't come to church, Matthew. Your, Your life is too much of a mess. You're unclean. Stay outside. We don't want you in here. A tax collector would have been on the same level as a thief, burglar, or a murderer. I mean, think about it. You're a tax collector, and you're, you're in the same social status as a murderer. You may have well killed somebody. You're, you're religiously unacceptable. You're unclean. You're politically unacceptable. Matthew, you're too short. You don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. And then Matthew was socially unacceptable. If you saw Matthew walking down this side of the street, you would cross over to the other side of the street because you didn't want to be on the same side with him. You wanted to keep your distance from that guy because he's religiously unclean. Don't get too close. You get too close to Matthew. Aren't you condoning who he is? Aren't you saying his behavior is okay? You keep your distance from those guys. You don't go to their house and have dinner. You don't invite them to your house. If they want to give you a gift, if Matthew wants to take out of his wealth of collecting taxes, give you a financial gift, you better not accept it. That'd be socially unacceptable. And you better not give a gift to him. If you're traveling in the same direction, on I-5 with Matthew, you keep your distance from his car. This, This guy, you... You stay away from him. He's socially unacceptable. He's religiously unacceptable. He's politically unacceptable. He's too short. He doesn't measure up. He doesn't have what it takes. Stay away. And can you imagine for a moment the sting of hearing those words, of feeling that pain on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? I don't want to be around you because you're one of them. You're too Short. When I was uh, growing up in boarding school, um, after uh, dinner uh, in, the, in a cafeteria, we, we had study halls. But there was like a half hour break after dinner and we would rush through dinner and eat as quickly as we could. Um, because we would typically go up to this the field up on campus and play soccer. And it's a small school, right? So there's maybe 130, 140 uh, kids there. And so when you're playing soccer and you're, you're choosing teams, um, there's a bunch of us who want to play. You could have seniors and juniors. You could have fifth and sixth graders. I mean, you get this whole range of people. And I remember one night after dinner that we, we'd had our dinner and we were up there. We we're going to play soccer. And you know how it goes. You got two people who are captains, right? You know how this goes. Two people, captains rescue, are lined up on the fence. So I'm lined up on the fence. I'm a sixth grader. I'm, uh, I'm 10 years old. And there's all these people lined up. And there's varsity soccer players. And there's you know, seniors and juniors and sophomores. And work your way down. And here's the, the little people down here. I'm one of the little people. Two captains. One of the guys, name, his name is Buzz. And they're picking teams. And they're making their first pick. One guy makes his first pick. And obviously makes a great pick. Picks a great player. Uh, and Buzz says, I want, I'll take Fowler. 
And I'm looking at him like, me? Yeah, I'll, I'll take you. And so here I, I walk up. And I'm walking by all the, these people who are great soccer players. And I'm 10. And I can, I can barely run and stay on my feet. <laughs> and Buzz chose me. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. In fact, it so impacted me that when, when Buzz would play soccer for our school, I would ride the Reuter bus because I wanted to watch Buzz play. I wanted to be, I wanted, he was my hero. I wanted to be around Buzz because Buzz picked me. Buzz broke the rules. You're not supposed to pick sixth graders. Short little miniature people. You want to, you want to pick the seniors, the juniors, right? You want to pick the stars because you want to win. Buzz broke the rules. Jesus broke the rules. Jesus broke the rules. In in Matthew, what we have here is we have Jesus who, he's just healed a paralytic. Okay, so in fact, he's forgiven, breaking rules, he's forgiven his sins. He's, He's healed this paralytic. And now he's walking down this road, headed to Capernaum. And there's Matthew's booth, his, his cubicle, his tax collecting area. He's positioned probably close by the Sea of Galilee because he's going to be taxing shipments that are crossing the lake. He's positioned himself at, at uh, crossroads because people who are walking by, he can tax them there. And Jesus is walking down this road. And we don't know if, if there was anyone in line paying tax. So we don't know if, if, did Matthew see Jesus from a distance and see him walking up? And could it be that if Matthew does look over, sees Jesus coming, does he brace himself for the inevitable? Okay, here comes a rabbi. I'm going to get it. This, this one's a famous rabbi. Everyone's flocking after him. Brace myself, you're too short, you don't have what it takes. Is that what he's thinking? Well, we don't know. But somewhere in this, in this story, Jesus is coming from healing a paralytic. He's walking down the road here. He comes up to, to Matthew's tax collecting booth. He walks up, waits in line perhaps, gets to, the, gets to the front of the line, and it says to Matthew, Matthew, I want to offer you the traditional rabbinic invitation. Follow me. I want you to be with me. I want you to learn from me. Matthew, follow me. He broke the rules. Jesus broke the rules. I mean, if if you're a senior lined up on the fence watching a sixth grader getting picked, you're you're scratching your head, aren't you? Maybe you're even mad. Pharisees are mad. Pharisees are pretty upset. Because Matthew, he leaves his tax collecting business. He leaves it behind and he follows Jesus and he so loves being Jesus, apparently, that he wants all his friends to be with Jesus and they have this dinner party. And who do you invite over for dinner when you're too short, when you don't measure up, when you don't have what it takes? You invite all the short people, right? You invite all your friends who've been rejected by the religious establishment by the day of the day. So here, Jesus is having dinner. He's having dinner at Matthew's house. we got tax collectors and sinners that are there. And we've got the guys who are standing on the fence. They're walking by, the Pharisees. They're walking by and going, wait a minute, what's going on here? 
There's this rabbi Jesus and he's having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't he know the rules? These are the politically, religiously, socially unacceptable short people. And so the Pharisees go to the disciples and, and ask the disciples, why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think it's interesting that they go to the, <clears throat> the Pharisees go to the disciples. They don't go to Jesus. If you've gone through some of the peacemaker training, they're violating all the peacemaker training. <laughs> they don't want a culture of peace. They're planting seeds, undermining the leadership of this rabbi Jesus. Doesn't your teacher know he's breaking the rules? Doesn't your teacher know you're not supposed to have dinner with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overhears it. Or maybe one of the disciples doesn't know. And he goes, asks Jesus. I think Jesus overhears it. And so that's why we, we have Jesus then giving sort of this biblical lesson to the Pharisees. He, he first says in, in verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn. Here, I want you guys to go study this. I want you to go and, and learn something. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees are righteous. What he said is that he's coming to call sinners. Those who know that they're sick. And the way he explains what it means to, to I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is he gives his metaphor of a doctor. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick, Jesus, is going to go to sick people. Let me make sure we understand this. Imagine for a moment that you want to become a doctor. So you go through all the training to become a doctor. I mean, you, you do the undergraduate work, you, you do med school, you take the MCATs, you do an internship, you, you do your residency, you do all this, all this work. It's so much work and you're spending so much money so that you can become a doctor. And finally, after years of going through all this training, all this preparation, you're standing in line, you're graduating, and you get your diploma and you're an MD. Okay, you're a doctor, and, 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 and you get to go practice now. But here's the problem. You don't like sick people. So you don't open up a practice because you don't want to be around those sick people because, because you might get sick. But you have all the training to be a healer, but, but you don't, you don't want to see patients. In fact, you don't make the rounds of the hospital because, well, you don't have any patients there. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You'd have a hard time making a living as a doctor that way. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm a healer. So I'm going to go to the people who need my healing touch. Like a doctor goes to the sick, I'm going to go to those who, who need me. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want just an acknowledgement of who God is. You can study that God is kind. You can sing songs about how compassionate and kind God is. But what I want you to do is I want you to become like that to people around you. But here's the deal, Pharisees. You just want to keep those people at arm's length. But I'm a healer. And I've come to those who are sick and know that they're sick. 
I think this would be a great moment for us just to step out from like 32, 33 AD, extract ourselves for a moment and come to 2010 here and make some important contrasts. Just a couple contrasts. The first one's holiness. Between what the Pharisees, how the, the Pharisees defined holiness and how Jesus would define holiness. The Pharisees would have defined holiness by saying holiness is external and holiness is expressed by separation from the people who do what you don't do. This is how a religious person, a Pharisee, would, ex- would define holiness. Holiness is external and is expressed by separation. Keep those people over here. Because they, they're doing what I don't do. And they don't do what I do. So I'm just going to keep them over here because that's those people. And if I separate myself from them, then, then I'll stay holy. Because you don't want to get too close to them. Because if you get too close to them, you might get sick. And aren't you sending a message if you hang out with them? Aren't you saying that that's, that's okay? So we're just going to keep them over there. Jesus, on the other hand, holiness is who you are. And it doesn't mean no contact with sinners. It necessitates contact with sinners. Contact doesn't mean to be defiled, just as separation doesn't mean to be holy. Let me read that last line again. Contact doesn't mean to be defiled, just as separation doesn't mean to be holy. Keep those people over there. That's what the Pharisees were saying. But Jesus, as a healer, is going to go to where those people are. Because they need him. And I think we need to get real clear on this because I think there's a continuum here. On one side, we have the separation sort of idea that the Pharisees would have expressed in how we pursue holiness. And on the other side, I think also that we can make the mistake that, well, we don't want to do what the Pharisees are doing. So we sort of engage in this unthinking immersion. That we just, well, we'll just live like they do. We'll do all the things they do because we want to become like them. And that's not what Jesus did. I don't believe we're being called to an unthinking immersion or separation. But what happens here is Jesus doesn't believe in this external definition of holiness. But he draws near to the person who needs him. And he draws near with a healthy understanding of the contagion of their disease. But he draws near, much like a doctor would draw near to someone who has an infection. Not to say, aha, you're infected. But to say, let me bring healing to your life. The second contrast that I think it's important to make is sort of our own application is how we see people. The Pharisees, how they saw people is that they diagnosed, they labeled, and they quarantined. Isn't it interesting in this story that when the Pharisees walk up to this dinner party, that they ask the disciples, why is it that your teacher is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners? Labels are convenient, aren't they? Labels are kind of convenient. and Not all labels are bad. Some are very helpful. But some labels bring with them a, a stereotypical general, uh, this generalization of how people think and feel and, and who they are. That's those people. That's, that's them. And really, it is surprising how much emotion rises up in us when you mention these groupings or these labels. 
I mean, just think of a few of them. And just feel what happens inside of you. Like, beaver fans. Okay? Some of you in this room, ah, just joy rises in your soul. Uh, now you've crossed the line. <laughs> but there's, a, there's an emotional reaction, right? And then there's those other fans. And, uh, and <laughs> but there's, there's emotion to these labels. And sometimes those emotions can, can get pretty intense. Republican, Democrat, Independent. Hmm. Married, single, hmm. divorced. Addict, alcoholic. Straight, homosexual. Ah, smoker, non-smoker. See, the Pharisees had these labels, that's those people. Why, why does your teacher hang out with those people? This is how the Pharisees saw people. Jesus, on the other hand, he's walking down this road to Capernaum, sees that tax booth, and he walks up to Matthew, who is, by the way, a tax collector. And he is a sinner. But he walks up to Matthew, who, by the way, Matthew's name means gift of God. And could it be that, that Matthew, that Jesus is walking down the road, he walks up to Matthew, sees Matthew, gift of God. Not tax collector and sinner. He walks up, sees Matthew, gift of God, stands in line, gets to the front of the booth and says, Matthew, follow me. I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. Learn from me. Let's walk together. Jesus saw sick people and he came to them as a healer. Jesus saw a person. He knew a name. And do you see Joe or do you see Joe the homosexual? Do you see that person, those documented, undocumented? We can keep going, these labels, and something happens inside of us. Jesus sees the person. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what's my definition of holiness? Is it keeping those people over there? That was the Pharisees' definition. Holiness is who you are and necessitates contact. Guess what? By the power of the Holy Spirit alive in you, Christ in you, you can go as a healer with a healthy respect for the contagion of the disease. Not in, an, in, an, in this unthinking immersion. But you can go as a healer. And give mercy and kindness and compassion. How do you see people? You see labels? Or do you see names? And Jesus chooses Matthew. You have to understand how this, what a hurdle this was for the people of the day to have Matthew on the team. <laughs> I, I hope this doesn't. This isn't a stumbling block for you. But imagine Hugh Hefner sitting in his office 
His playboy office. This guy who's brought all kinds of destruction to people's lives through this pornographic industry. Wrecked lives and marriages and families and just this incredibly destructive industry. And imagine Jesus walking into corporate headquarters of Playboy, walking up to Hugh Hefner's desk and saying to Hugh, Hugh, follow me. And if Hugh were to leave that behind and follow Jesus, don't you think that would be a hurdle for people? Why do you have Hugh Hefner on your governing board? Can you see the the mental struggle here? But Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew leaves that life behind. And by the way, the other disciples, they could go back to fishing. Matthew couldn't go back to tax collecting. He left it behind. And if Matthew were one of the 24 or 25 on the platform and we were to say, Matthew, what's the picture of Jesus that we need to get? What's the, what's the, 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 the piece of the mosaic? What's the pixel that we need so that we can, we can have this accurate picture of, of who Jesus is? I think that Matthew would say without reservation, he would say, here's what I want you to know about Jesus. Jesus chooses short people. Jesus chose me, Matthew, a tax collector and a sinner. I didn't measure up. I was too short. I didn't have what it took. And I was sitting there in my cubicle, in my tax booth, and Jesus walked up and said, I want you to be with me. And I followed him. And my life has never been the same. Jesus chooses Sure, people. Isn't that good news? As you look at your own life. He loves you. You may feel like you don't measure up. But he's calling you and saying, I want you to be with me. You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503 503- We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.